Hello everyone, it's April 13th, 2021, so we got a lot of stops on this week's orbit. The ISS is going to be close to no vacancy pretty soon. Rocket Lab is inching its way to a booster reuse. China is opening up two new spaceports, and the Lunar Gateway has passed a new milestone. Alright, let's not waste time, and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 304 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Dennis. Alright, and no Ben this week. He's recovering from a round two vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> what was it he said a couple weeks ago like one third of us or something or other so now i guess two thirds of us are vaccinated that's right yeah yeah we were halfway uh <laughs> oh yeah halfway I, I guess if you count yeah, half yeah like one shot i yeah. had the two he had the one and you had yeah, yeah none yet, but. we were just talking before the show that i had made an appointment to get my vaccine but i didn't get a response i had to wait for a confirmation email and i just never got mm-hmm. one so um, I don't know what's mm. going on, but I'm going to try again. If I have to make a phone call, I will. But I, I think I can just reapply. Like, I don't know. <laughs> it was just kind of weird that they never confirmed my date or time or anything. Yeah. So. And, 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 but you still had like a date and time, even though it wasn't confirmed? Yeah. yeah. I would just show up next time. It, it does That's seem probably to be a good idea. A big, it can be a little chaotic, it seems, uh, the, the systems that are set up for different, you know, because each state, right, seems to have their own kind of way that they're doing it. And so. Yeah. For right now, luckily, the two of us are feeling more or less good. And I know you have a cold. Um, I got nothing, so yeah. I'm fine. So <laughs> at least, at least, yeah, my cold because it's all like it's all like runny nose, which is essentially mm. the only symptom that COVID doesn't have. And so, yeah, <laughs> the one symptom I do have. So that's why I can at least be confident I don't have. Uh, <laughs> I do not have it. Yeah. So I guess we should move on to the news, though, because we got a lot. We have a lot of news to talk about. It's been a pretty active week. We got so much we can't even. We don't even have time to talk about uh, SpaceX abandoning their efforts to catch payload fairings but um but they yeah. are <laughs> it turns out they're just doing a better job scooping them out of the ocean so uh i figured it was just because it just wasn't worth it and since they you know have these big goals of transitioning to starship i mean who knows when that will actually be like mm-hmm. that's not going to be an issue recovering payload bearings but i assume that they're still going to be launching falcon 9s for some time to come but sure, if they sure. can fish them out of the ocean it's, it's just that they have to refurbish them that's i guess the yeah, primary so, concern yeah the, the process uh like can be worse than just scooping them directly out of the ocean like right it's um mistree and miss uh mischief mischief right because they're both puns <laughs> but yeah they they apparently like like i i didn't realize one time a, a fairing had uh broken through the net and hit the uh actual like the deck or like you know impinged on the uh the deck of the uh the the ship which you know that's that's no good yeah. <laughs> that pretty much unusable after that and uh scooping it out one time was a was a problem for one of these because they're you know not designed for that and so i guess if they just have a more dedicated you know uh ship to do that and or ships because they got the two go searcher and go navigator uh, but i think they're also planning on building a new uh really big one uh to go and basically scoop things out so mm-hmm. they kind of been doing i guess these two systems in parallel but now they uh are, are, are finally saying okay well let's let's just stop trying to catch them with these things and so they're gonna decommission the two and um yeah unc willie had seen one uh in person um and said how impressive it was how wide the net was so that docked the net extended almost over the sidewalk of the street next to the dock <laughs> which it makes sense to increase your catching area but like Wow, yeah, I guess when you're just seeing them on the water without much of a sense of scale, you, it, yeah, it's easy to lose track of just how big these are. I mean, the payload fairings themselves are pretty big, so you're going to need a big net for sure, yeah. But uh, anyway, yeah, that's something that we're not going to talk about, right? So I guess let's move on to the news. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, 
First up in the news, um, a crew of 10 aboard the International Space Station. So pretty much just because of the logistics of, you know, like moving people on and off station, um, we're going to have 10 people. Is that what's going on here? Yeah, yeah. We're going to briefly have 10 people, and then we're going to go back to 7, and then we're going to have 11 people, and then we're going to go back to 7. Like, there's there's going to be quite a few crew changes coming up, and so... um. I just thought that was pretty interesting. So right now, um, MS-18, which took uh, uh, two uh, Russian cosmonauts, uh, Oleg Novitsky, Peter Dubrov, and then um, uh, NASA astronaut Mark Vandehey, that one just did a uh, uh, one of these ultra-fast uh, rendezvous. So it was only like three and a half hours and two orbits to get to station, which is just wild. But uh, because they went up there while there were other two crews already on board, that's where you get the 10, right? Those three... Uh, three more from MS-17, which is uh, Rizhikov, Kudsverchikov, and Kate Rubens. And then uh, Crew-1, uh, which has been up there for you know a while now with uh, Mike Hopkins, Victor Glover, Shannon Walker, and Suichi Noguchi. And so um, in any event, the, the, that's, that's where you get those 11 from. But it's going to be brief because the, the MS-17 crew is going to be returning you know, back to Earth later this week. Uh, upcoming spaceflight events. <laughs> yep. But yeah, but, but then the reason it's going to get all the way to 11 is because just next week, April 22nd, which a week or two is going to be when crew two, uh, is, is intended to launch. And so that's going to take the seven people on deck and are currently on orbit and add another four to them. So there's going to be two, you know, dragon crews up there at the same time, which is going to be pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So that's just a lot of turnaround. That's, um, but that's kind of cool to have like, you know, a bustling, it's kind of like it's a space station and it's – well, it's not a waypoint because you're not really going anywhere. You're just going – I mean that is a destination, but it's kind of neat to see that many people, you know, like coming and going. That's just uh, – Yeah, yeah. That's just pretty right. neat. They're, they're all they're all bringing their own vehicles up there. Mm-hmm. They're all parking yeah. at their own, you know, <laughs> uh, docking ports. You know, it's it's pretty neat, you know. <laughs> and maybe someday, you know, there'll be a couple other vehicles. We're still waiting on Starliner, right? Like that's still that, waiting on Starliner. So that's, um, I mean, it's been you know delayed quite a bit, and I, and I can't remember what the latest news is on what's going on there. But um, I had I had an, no earlier than April the last time I had looked, but I haven't heard much about them more recently than that. I'm pretty so sure it's April. been, yeah, it is April. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's been pushed back further than that. I want to say that there were even larger issues that they had come across and, and that it was just going to take longer. So who knows? Possibly not even oh, this geez. year. I don't know, but um, here's oh. hoping, you know, that would be so neat to see another vehicle. Okay, so I found the second uncrewed uh, uh, orbital flight test two is no earlier than uh, July of this year. And so then they have nominally the first, uh, the crew flight test. So this would be uh, Barry Wilmore, Michael Fink, and uh, Nicole Mann. And that would be September uh, 20 of this year. So okay. so a couple months after that, if, that if, if, the, if the uncrewed flight goes as well as they hoped the original one went. <laughs> but we'll see. <laughs> and, and, and that's still the demo one too. So yep. right, the, the, the official Starliner one, might be at the end of the year, depending on how things go. There, there's a little interesting thing, I think, as far as you know, the the, the crews going right. So MS18, the one that just launched, the Soyuz one that just launched. Um, so Dubrov, who's a rookie cosmonaut, and then uh, Van de Hey uh, might actually stay on station for up to an entire year if the next Russian flight basically brings along um, the actor and director to do that filming that they had been talking about. And so if that happens, then those seats that you know would have gone to Dubrov and Van de Hey would go to these these two, and thus, you know, they might be on orbit for a long time, which is really interesting for Van Hay because he was, he was a last-minute sort of uh, 
crew met he was he was only announced his his, his him flying on uh, on this mission was uh only announced like a month ago really like it was a very last minute thing and it had to do with all this sort of wheeling and dealing right because the u.s and russia want to you know make sure that they have you know access to each other's vehicles in case something happens and the so uses grounded for an extended period of time they want to make sure that there's cosmonauts on station all the yeah. time and similarly you know if, if something happens to the u.s vehicles like it had for 10 years or however long <laughs> before uh crew one so yeah but um, that'll that'll be something to see if they go uh, and have uh, this Russian film going and getting shot up there. <laughs> yeah, so that's a Russian film. But then there's also I think Tom Cruise is training for something in space, right? I mean, he's going to be making I guess the first American film and or the first real like actor, you know, like not like Hollywood a, level production. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like we're not talking about like an astronaut saying a few lines, but <laughs> yeah. Right. Because I'm pretty sure Richard Garriott did a uh, a short film on orbit, mm-hmm. technically, where he. Just filmed enough things that he could piece together. That's got to be crazy because just, you know, doing a normal, you know, Hollywood level film is a big deal. Like just, just like imagine, I don't know, like it, it's hard to wrap my head around how they're, how they're going to do that just because uh-huh. does that mean you need to train a cameraman to do what he, you know, like just to do uh-huh. the kind of stuff that is hard enough again on earth. Although, you know, technology has come a long way. You can, you know, use some pretty small cameras that can take some very good, you know, high resolution footage. And I'm just going to be very interested to see how it all looks in the end because, and I don't so much mean the fact that you have an actor in zero G, but I just mean, is it going to, still look and feel like a Hollywood movie, you know, like, or is it going to sound or look different in some way because they just couldn't get the equipment in the lighting and blah, 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 blah. There's so many things that you have to worry right. about. Exactly. Cause yeah, you could do indie films where you literally have like, you know, a, a handful of people filming in some interesting thing and that can come out well, but like, yeah, like a normal set would have, you know, somebody keeping an eye out for like somebody doing the lighting, somebody keep an eye out for continuity. Yeah. You know what I mean, <laughs> set designers, yeah. uh, all that kind of stuff, you know? And I mean, just like, imagine having to reset your scene, but everything's like floating <laughs> around. Like you can't just set stuff back where it goes. Yeah. Uh, yeah you need to reorient the station because the earth is not at the angle it was uh, last set. So. Yeah. Like you have to wait for the next. <laughs> go around you know back to one all right right just yeah just like all the logistics of making a movie but in space that's gonna be cool yeah it'll it'll definitely be cool to see all right so now we can uh, translate on over to our second story number two here which is rocket lab and they are they're going to test a booster recovery from space so they're basically just going to be recovering a first stage booster yep and one that's gonna be basically you know coming in Really high, really hot. But they're not going to be doing a capture of the booster. They're still going to be doing a splashdown, right? Because the ultimate goal is to capture it with a helicopter, as I recall. So it's right. the whole skyhook thing. Um, uh-huh. But they're not going to be doing that. But they are going to recover it, which I guess just means they're going to, you know, like fish it out of the ocean and then possibly refurbish it for reuse at some point. Yeah, yeah. My 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 take is that it seems like, you know, I mean, this thing is going to be coming in so hot, you know, greater than Mach 8. 2400 degrees Celsius temperatures that just that sort of re-entry um, profile that they're aiming for where they got the engines forward remember we talked about their new heat shield that they that's going to be really crucial because they're not doing I mean they're they're just kind of passively slowing down on re-entry the way that just by the angle that they take and yeah and so uh, because of that you know I guess you know 
whether or not they reuse this booster, I'm not entirely sure, but like whether or not you can slow it down so well that, you know, at the end of the day, then just a parachute, you know, a Drogon main parachute, and then you can have it land in the ocean in one piece. You know what I mean? Because if, it, if yeah. it just comes in hot, it's just going to, you know, either burn up or hit the ocean so hard, you know, um, yeah, it'd be a big old mess. <laughs> yeah. So I guess when I said, you know, possibly reuse it, that's not going to happen, um, but they are going to recover it. I suppose any past boosters that they've flown, have they recovered those? Um, because I'm wondering what the difference is between recovery and, so this is just, this is just recovery with a parachute before splashdown, I suppose, as opposed to just fishing it out of the ocean in the form of some kind of wreckage. But uh, I don't remember any details about rock Rocket Labs recovery of first stage boosters off the top of my head. Yeah, just they, I, they they did the one, and I'm guessing that one wasn't coming in quite as hot for this one to be, you know, such a big deal. And so they, they do want to do three of these, though. And I guess, you know, each time, or at least this one is getting progressively, you know, going to be a more challenging re-entry, and then maybe uh, a third one just for good measure. Or there'll be something different about that one that they'll get to test a little bit more. And then, because they just really need to slow it down big time so that the parachute would be you know, could do its job. Then only then can you have your helicopter come in and try to, you know, skyhook it out of the sky. Yeah, they did. They did the 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 helicopter drop. You know, where a different helicopter drop one, <laughs> uh, a first stage that could then get scooped up, and that was just such crazy videos. But can imagine one coming in from from space and actually going and snatching it up midair. Yeah. That would be, be wild. <laughs> and now you also have in the show notes, you have that a neutron will use propulsive landing. I think we had uh, talked about that when we first talked about the neutron launch vehicle. That's just incidental, I guess, to the story, right? The story is that, you know, this May, the running out of toes mission, uh, it's, it's called that because it's going to be their 20th mission. <laughs> yeah. Um, that one's going to be trying, you know, another one of these uh, ocean splashdowns. And this would be the first one where the booster uh, has already, I, you know, surpassed the Carmen line or at least 80 kilometers, depending on, you know. Yeah. So that that's kind of really cool. But then the yeah, neutron is that's kind of going to be their next gen sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, a bigger rocket propulsively being reused. So now let's translate on over to topic number three. We got a lot of uh, a lot of maneuvers to do here. <laughs> um, so the next transition is to a Chinese spaceport. So there are two new Chinese spaceports planned. The first one is just south of Shanghai, which is, you know, I would say it's a pretty good location mm. because there are some other um, well, not so much a spaceport. Well, I guess you can call it that, but there are other launch facilities that are way inland, like not near an ocean. And so that, you know, mm. is a huge problem. But this one is, or at least I assume that this one will be on the coast since, you know, Shanghai's on the coast. And so the actual location is in, uh, uh, Shangshan Peninsula, just south of Shanghai. Or just south of, uh, Ning Ningbo. So yeah, so I think this is one of those things where it's going to be like, you know, uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, like, like Ningbo is the major city while Shangshan is, a little is a peninsula that right. is a city too and knowing china has probably got you know it's probably a fairly big city but ningbo is how they seem to be reporting it in the news like in the in the headlines they'll talk about ningbo but in reality shangshan is going to be this the actual site yeah so this will be 20 billion yuan which is about three billion dollars or that's how much has been invested so far so this is similar in latitude to cape canaveral it's being called a space port to me, that has like a connotation of doing like more than just launching rockets for the government. And I don't know why that might just be me. I know the Kennedy Space Center is a, or at least I think that that would be considered a spaceport, you know, but I don't think of it as one. I, I think of a spaceport as being something like what's out in the desert. Um, What's, what's the one I'm thinking of? Oh, uh, Mojave? Yeah, I think of like Mojave's. Yeah, because that's just called a spaceport and it has a cool building. <laughs> <laughs> but this is probably just another launch facility, which is better positioned 
in terms of latitude. Plus, it's on the coast, like I said. And really, the at the end of the day, this is all about just you know, China is you know has a bunch of uh, commercial and private you know launch providers that are coming online or and that are already online or intend to come online. And so uh, the idea is they just you know they want even more locations for them to launch from. And so that's kind of the key here. So this one I think is going to have a uh, very much a, a commercial. Uh, uh, slant to it, you know what I mean? Because sometimes they'll build a, I won't call it a spaceport. <laughs> sometimes they'll build a uh, a launch center for, you know, like the like the Wenchang one was specifically built for Long March fives and sevens. Um, and so, but in this case, I, I get the sense that this one is just really to support the Chinese commercial launch industry. So Wenchang, right, which is the the newest of like, if you think of, there's other places they can launch from, uh, uh, Chinese uh, rockets can launch from, but the four big ones, um, there's there's two up in the north, and then there's uh, Xichang, which is, and th- those are both inland, Xichang, which is also inland, and this is one that's similar to the latitude as, uh, you know, Cape Canaveral and the, the, the new spaceport we just talked about. And um, and then Wenchang is uh, basically as far south as you can go uh, in, in mainland China. Um, and so it's, it's actually, I think it's technically on an island, but in any event, you know, that one, um, they're going to have, that was, you know, uh, like I said, originally built for long March fives and sevens, uh, but they're going to, uh, build essentially a second one in that same area that's going to focus on commercial providers. So, uh, again, they seem, they seem to be right. They, they, they launch a lot and they, they kind of feel like maybe they're launch facility limited at this point, you know what I mean? And so in the future, they're investing towards even bringing up their already high launch cadence even higher just by, you know, building these new facilities. And so. And there does seem to be a focus on, you know, commercial providers. So I think that they definitely see that as being, you know, the future because when you have commercial providers, you know, such as SpaceX, and I don't think any government can really compete with them, <laughs> then, uh-huh. you know, I, I think the, you know, the writing's on the wall. So yeah, you need to provide a place to launch all that stuff from. So, right. Yeah. That's really the name of the game is that this is all about, you know, supporting, you know, commercial providers and everything. And like part of that too, is not just these companies coming online, but also, you know, China's planning uh, their own uh, Leo constellation. And so that's a uh, Guowang, which is going to be 13,000 satellites. And so this is something that's, you know, long-term going to be bigger than just, uh, you know, Starlink and OneWeb. If, uh, you know, multiple constellate Leo constellations come online, then it's going to be kind of yeah, kind of an issue. Well, we're just burning through these, so I guess we can move on to number four. Yeah, this right? is, yeah. This is our this is our rideshare episode. Yeah, I guess. this is the, the rideshare <laughs> episode. All right, yeah. topic number four, and this is something that uh, I believe Ben, who couldn't be here but still contributed, uh, he did enter mm. into our it's notes. Always here. here in spirit. Yeah, it actually was it was clutch for uh, organizing today's show and building yeah. it up. So thank you, Ben. So yeah, topic number four here: the lunar gateway. So end-to-end testing of key lunar gateway subsystems has been completed that's very good like that that's good news like i don't know i don't know how else to say it so i mean i do like to see real progress <laughs> yeah. being made with lunar gateway um and this is you know end-to-end testing which sounds very comprehensive like hey you know they've you know hit a major milestone but uh yeah so what are those milestones specifically right so yeah so particular they were looking at the the solar electric propulsion or sep uh subsystem on the Power and propulsion element or PPE module, right? So, uh, gateways gonna basically, right, start with, uh, this, this PPE module, which as you can imagine gives power as well as propulsion to the space station. Um, uh, along with the, uh, the habitation module, Halo. And so, uh, they're gonna be kind of, you know, uh, 
uh, docked together uh, rather than dock them in orbit. Uh, basically, they're going to be kind of hooked up together and then launched uh, on a single uh, uh, Falcon Heavy um, at some point. And so that's uh, what's cool about this is the propulsion in the PPE uh, is provided by uh, solar electric propulsion, in particular for uh, Hall effect thrusters, right? So solar electric just means that you your electric propulsion um, and that you're getting your energy from solar panels or solar cells. And so the key to this was testing that your, your your thrusters could do multiple reliable startups, as you can imagine, you know, having these for a space station uh, like the Lunar Gateway is, you know, critical. Yeah. Yeah. And so, it, like you said, right, end-to-end testing. So they 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 basically had uh, worked on um, or validated the uh, the high-powered control electronics, uh, the PPU-600, which uh, Maxar had built. Um, the xenon feed system. So these are, you know, xenon is used as a propellant, um, which uh, Moog incorporated. Uh, <laughs> now that's supply. not the same Moog that makes like the synthesizer, right? So thank you, Emery, for pointing out that. So we had learned, right, that this uh, uh, this Moog incorporated, right, which works in you know, aerospace and other, you know, uh, was uh, founded by the cousin of the inventor of the Moog synthesizer, and so. All sorts of things going on here, and then and then finally the the the, the Hall effect thrusters themselves. Uh, these are called uh, BHT six hundreds. Um, were fabricated by uh, Buzek, and so um, there you know there's going to be four of these kind of uh, all together. Um, like I said, with the testing, there's a lot of uh, you know. Uh, checking that the startups, uh, uh, you could reliably restart them uh, multiple times. And uh, these are going to be 30% more powerful than anything uh, these companies had flown before and would make them the most powerful uh, solar, solar electric propulsion uh, you know, unit that was actually used in space. That stands to reason to me just because I'm thinking that, you know, when you have something as big as uh, the Lunar Gateway and you have to do station keeping and you have to do it consistently, you know, like it, I mean, it, mm. it like this isn't just a satellite, you know, it, it's a, it's right, a whole right. station. So you're going to need some pretty big thrusters. Yep. It stands to reason. Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, previous missions that use this were not space stations. <laughs> yeah. There were, you know, missions like Dawn, Hayabusa, Bepi Colombo, and the Psyche is going to use it as well. But like, yeah, but again, much uh, mm-hmm. smaller in scale. Yeah, because I think when it's all uh, all when it's completed, Lunar Gateway is going to be something like maybe the a sixth of the size or a sixth of the volume of the International Space Station, and so that's still yeah that's still yeah that's still big. big. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's bigger than uh, the volume. Like if you just took the volume of people that are on station right now, right? <laughs> Each of them, you know, takes up a tenth of it on average. You'd say. And therefore, uh, uh, one-sixth uh, Lunar Gateway would be more spacious than what they're dealing with right now with a crew of 10. All right. So that concludes all four of our stop-offs on this orbital journey. Yeah. <laughs> so nice, big, short, and sweet this week as well. We got four of them. So I guess you can start us off with that first one, Dennis. Copy that. First up, Space Startup Phase 4 wins government contract. Phase 4 won a $750,000 SBIR award from the Air Force to test iodine as propellant for their Maxwell Electric thrusters. Solid iodine has several advantages over other propellants like xenon or krypton, including simplicity and cost, as iodine doesn't require high-pressure storage and more propellant can be packed into a given volume. Phase 4's radio frequency thrusters will circumvent iodine's biggest drawback, 
While the propellant is well known for corroding cathodes, RF technology will accelerate the propellant without the need for cathodes. French startup ThrustMe, whom we interviewed on episode 237, had flown the world's first iodine thruster late last year on a Chinese CubeSat. And then next up, the Biden administration asked for 6.3% increase to NASA's budget. Wow, so that's a surprise considering what we were talking about for the past month or so. Um, so yeah, 6.3% increase. Okay, so President Biden is requesting $24.7 billion for NASA's fiscal year 2022 budget, which is an increase of $1.5 billion over the level appropriated for the previous year. This includes increases to the Artemis program, climate science, STEM education, international space station research, and space technology development. Uh, the budget did not include specific numbers towards robotic exploration, but specifically supports Mars sample return, Europa Clipper, a Dragonfly, and and the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope. The 6% increase is less than the 12% increase President Trump requested last year, although much less than a 12% increase was provided in part due to proposed cuts to space science and education programs, the Roman Space Telescope, Earth Science Programs, and NASA's entire STEM education office. Next up, JWST packs its sunshield in preparation for October launch. The James Webb Space Telescope's five-layer, diamond-shaped sunshield the size of a tennis court has now completed folding at Northrop Grumman in Redondo Beach, California. Specifically engineered to fold up within the Ariane 5 rocket planned to launch the telescope on October 31st, when deployed, the sunshield will protect the telescope's mainly infrared optics from heat sources and enable high instrument sensitivity. With the successful completion of the month-long folding process, the engineering team has prepared the sunshield for its complex deployment in space, which consists of unfolding at the end of the telescope's first week in space, initially by stretching out to its full size, and then by separating and tensioning each of its five layers. That's going to be a feat. <laughs> yep. All right, and then finally, Ingenuity Flight 1 delayed. Watchdogs are a common mechanism in electronics. They usually do the same thing your browser does when a request times out. In this case, NASA hasn't announced what went wrong, but as Ingenuity was spinning up its rotors during final checkout tests, it failed to switch from pre-flight to flight mode when a watchdog timer expired. We can assume that some piece of hardware stopped communicating if it didn't die outright. The team has set aside three days to work the problem and flight one is now scheduled no earlier than April 14th. So good luck to Ingenuity. Hopefully that can be resolved. I really hope so at least. I really want to see this succeed. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. And we have a really quick correction from Ben Hallert. Um, and I think, Dennis, you want to take this one. Yeah, so I sincerely apologize because as a listener, this would be the type of thing that would make me kind of cringe and start yelling at the uh, <laughs> at the air around me in the podcast. Um, so evidently, last week's uh, this week uh, this week or I guess last week in spaceflight history, I had mixed up Space Lab and Skylab a number of times. Right? I know at one point I was talking about veteran astronauts for early STS missions, shuttle missions, mm -hmm. and they had drawn some of them from Skylab. Space Lab, of course, was something that would fit in the shuttle payload bay for doing experiments and you have a little tube connecting the airlock to space lab and so that was you know there there had not been a space lab flown uh at this point at least as of last week's event that i was talking about so uh thank you uh ben for pointing that out um i uh yeah i i realized you know in my brain i was thinking skylab each time i was saying it but evidently i said it more than once i said space lab and so sorry okay. about that 
that's an honest mistake or that was, you know, that's just a, that's, that's more of a slip of the tongue more than anything, it's you know, a, like. It's a disappointing mistake. Is, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, but you, me. but I mean, you know, the difference between Space Lab and Skylab, it's just that they sound kind of similar in your, you know. Right. And then you could throw Space Hab into the mix too. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe I should just blame NASA. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to this week in spaceflight history now. So we have some winners, uh, the Greek uh, Joseph Marlin and Peter McMalley. And the clue was bullseye or possibly with a question mark like bullseye. I couldn't decide which, but, you know, pick either one of those. That's the clue. So this week in spaceflight history, that was on the 15th of April, 2005. And it was a collision of the DART satellite with the Mubilcom satellite. I don't know how to say it, but that's what I'm going to go with, by the way. So the M-U-B-L-C-O-M satellite. So we're going to talk about what is DART and what is Mubilcom or Mobilcom. That sounds better to say Mobilcom, but it's spelled with a U. So I'm going to say Mubil. Mm. Yeah. So DART stands for a demonstration for autonomous rendezvous technology. And basically it was meant to be somewhat analogous to the Russian Coors system, or uh, I believe before that, the EGLA system. And this was in 2005. And at that time, really only Russia and Japan had the ability to autonomously rendezvous and dock. This was not a capability which NASA had. So they contracted with Orbital Sciences for $95 million to develop this technology. The objective was to essentially have the ability for a satellite or some other spacecraft on orbit to maneuver, change orbit, do orbital phasing, and rendezvous. This particular satellite uses or used something called the AVGS, which is the Advanced Video Guidance Sensor. And we're going to talk more about that later. But basically, the idea is to be able to do station keeping, circumnavigation, docking access approach, and collision of avoidance, um, which is something that uh, apparently it uh, was not too <laughs> particularly good at. Um, but there's a reason for that. So, you know, something like cores. Now, I actually don't know if the cursed course system, however you say it, um, I don't know if it has like all these capabilities because I think of it as something, you know, they can rendezvous a station and dock, but things like, you know, circumnavigation and collision avoidance, um, there have been instances where, you know, they have had to do that, but that was not, you know, I don't think that that was completely autonomous. There is some human intervention there. Um, the big difference is that this system, the DART system, it is meant to be 100% autonomous. Um, pretty much from the moment that it's launched, it's all hands off. And at that point, ground control is just taking passive data. Like that's it. They just pretty much, you know, watch. Nothing else in terms of human intervention, which is pretty, you know, impressive considering that it um, does have to, you know, do some orbital raising and then it has to approach and do all this other stuff. So uh, sure. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, and this is 16 years ago. Yeah. So um, the Mubilcom satellite is what it was meant to be docking or not docking with, but doing these proximity maneuvers with. I don't think there was any kind of docking because, you know, there was no docking interface. So really, it's just proximity, you know, operations in the vicinity of the satellite. I guess possibly getting to within, you know, a couple feet or something like that. But they pretty much just needed a target vehicle. And that was this one, which is called Mubilcom, which stands for multiple paths beyond line of sight communications. Yeah, so that's a tortured acronym, um, as they all <laughs> tend to be. So multiple paths beyond line of sight communications, they turn that into Mubilcom. All right, that's... so whatever. <laughs> <laughs> the Mubilcom satellite, which was launched in 1999, that was launched by a Pegasus into a polar orbit. And this was actually a DARPA project. And uh, this was meant to provide digital voice and data communications to combat forces or for commercial users. So that's something that we see a lot of now that's actually pretty common technology. Basically, like when you don't have line of sight on the ground, um, you can communicate 
via satellite. Um, it was put into a polar orbit, and it weighs less than 100 pounds, so it's a very small satellite. And so during you know these proximity operations, I guess you don't have to worry about doing damage to something very large and heavy, and that could possibly be a hazard. It's just 100 pounds, so I imagine it's pretty small, like physically. Uh, the dimensions, I, I I believe, are you know something like a suitcase. Yeah. Well, if you look in the Discord, it has a very interesting form factor to say the least yeah. it looks like a magnifying glass almost uh, with two solar panels coming off the wall yeah <laughs> it does kind of look like a magnifying or yeah like something that like sherlock holmes would hold but it's like right <laughs> yeah like the, like that kind of a magnifying glass but floating in space but um by 2005 right so it had been six years they had already achieved all of their objectives with uh the Movocom satellite so this might make a good candidate for the dart spacecraft so let's talk about dart for oh. a second which is a much more conventionally shaped spacecraft. It's kind of a cylinder, so and nothing too weird. Still pretty small because you can fit aboard a Pegasus, so we're not talking about you know huge satellites here. Um, the forward segment, because it like it essentially has two segments. Um, the forward segment that houses the propellant tank, the reaction control system, thrusters, the batteries, communications equipment, um, and the advanced video guidance sensors or uh, the AVGS. So there are basically two modes of navigation here. Once the satellite is first launched, it uses GPS data in order to do all of, you know, the navigation to the target vehicle. But once it's within close proximity, that's when it switches over to the AVGS. And that's going to come into play like, as to why things didn't go right. But pretty much that's we know what happens here is um, you have the AVGS using a video guidance in what way I'm not too well versed in. I guess like using the video that it captures in order to interpolate that data in some way to do the navigation. Anyway, yeah, so that's the forward segment of the spacecraft. The aft segment that has uh, the avionics assembly and the HAPS, the hydrazine auxiliary propulsion system. The way that the AVGS works, and I guess we can go into a little bit more detail here, um, that would gather data from laser signals, which would be reflected off of a series of targets which were mounted on the Mubilcom. This was to calculate direction and distance. Now, I don't know what these targets were because they cannot have known ahead of time to put some kind of a target that you would reflect a laser off of. That satellite was launched six years prior. So Mubilcom was used... No, they had planned for this. Mubilcom was used for rendezvous target for NASA's DART mission. For this purpose, Mubilcom carried some laser reflectors for the targeting system. Oh, wow. Okay, so six years prior. Okay. That's very interesting. Okay, thank you for finding that. That's cool. You're welcome. I'm, so, I'm going down. There's a little rabbit hole here. Apparently, this bus is like the the the, the lens part, the circular part. Mm -hmm. Right. You could just stack a whole bunch of them. And so they launched a lot of these on Pegas Pegasus Pegasi <laughs> yeah, yeah. rockets back in the day. Yeah. So I guess that this particular project was conceived at least um, as early as. Uh, the late 1990s, since that's when Mubilcom launched, but the DART satellite was not launched until 2005. So that's pretty cool that they, you know, put these targets on board uh, to work with the AVGS. Yeah, that kind of surprised me. Yeah, so basically you're reflecting lasers off of these targets that are mounted on the satellite, uh, the Mubilcom satellite. Um, and from that, you can calculate direction and distance. When the satellite is within 200 to 500 meters of the target vehicle, the AVGS would actually provide the bearing data, but just that. But then as it moves closer and it gets to within 200 meters, that's when it switches to bearing range and relative attitude. So, mm -hmm. you know, you can kind of see these things come online. But of course, prior to that, it's actually just GPS. So first you have GPS, then you switch to AVGS. So DART was actually, yeah, I think I mentioned some um, DART was launched aboard a Pegasus, just like a Mubilcom. It was put into a parking orbit below the Mubilcom satellite, and it had to perform a series of system checks. I don't know how low the orbit was, but I do know that it, you know, did have to 
raise the orbit and do some phasing. So it looks like, yeah, uh, 740 by 750 kilometers was DART. And Mubocom was pretty much the same, but if it's not exactly the same, then, you know, you can kind of see how. Yeah, seven, seven, basically 770. <laughs> yeah, so it was put into a slightly lower orbit than Mubocom. Yes. Um, and, and from there it uh, used uh, those hydrazine auxiliary propulsion system thrusters and it bumped up the orbit and got to somewhere in the ballpark um, a few kilometers away. It was put directly below and behind the Mubocom satellite. At that point, that's when it goes within the AVGS operations range. So that's when, you know, that system kicks on. This was meant to be a 24-hour mission from this point forward, but it didn't last that long. So things went according to plan for the first eight hours of operation. Ground personnel did notice some anomalies with the navigation system, um, but it didn't seem to be too much of a problem. But then they did notice that during the proximity operations, it had been using more propellant than expected. The propellant used for those proximity operations was pressurized nitrogen gas. So things are going wrong, but there's nothing you can do about it because there's no ground like interference. Like you cannot uplink any commands or anything. This is like strictly passive observation. So at 11 hours into the mission, uh, DART had detected depletion of the propellant on board and it began maneuvers to move to a retirement orbit. So this was part of the satellite's program was to basically conduct these maneuvers and then move to some other orbit where it would um, quote-unquote retire. So somewhere that's not a sun-synchronous orbit. It was later discovered that actually at 3 minutes and 49 seconds before it initiated the retirement maneuver, it had collided with the Mubocom satellite. Ah. So something went wrong there. And NASA had to convene a mishap investigation board. What they had found was that there had been excessive thruster firings, which were a, a result of incorrect navigational data. So that data, the question is, why did that happen? And this mm. is kind of where it gets kind of strange and interesting. So basically, the way that the... DART system would work is it would take a series of measurements, compare the observed measurements with where it had, you know, predicted itself to be. And those things were not correlating. And when that happens, the whole proximity operations maneuver actually resets. So what happened was the estimated measurements were off by too much, and this caused a default back to the GPS data and a, a reset of the close proximity measurements. They're going back to the GPS system, and they're going to start over again with the AVGS system at that point. So basically, this causes the velocity measurement from the GPS data to be introduced back into the software calculations. The problem is that that data was not accurate. So the GPS receiver on the DART spacecraft was actually measuring a velocity that was off by 0.6 meters per second, and that was due to a software bug. Uh, this resulted in a reset like every three minutes. So basically, it was receiving the wrong data, incorporating that data into the AVGS software, which then took that data and tried to maneuver close to the spacecraft, and then things you know were not like matching up. So it backed off reset back to the GPS data, which once again was faulty. So this was not working at all. They just kept on resetting once every three minutes. And that's how the collision happened. So the collision was caused by inaccurate navigation system performance coupled with um, increasingly accurate azimuth and elevation information from the AVGS. So basically the AVGS was getting, you know, like accurate information in terms of azimuth and elevation. But when you combine that with bad GPS data, that's when things don't jive and things go wrong. So this resulted in lining up Mubalcom in the crosshairs of DART's guidance systems when 
and didn't have the ability to accurately control distance between the two spacecraft. There had been an um, avoidance maneuver triggered, but at that point it was too late because it didn't know exactly where it was. So it, it thought it was 130 meters away. It triggers the avoidance maneuver, but in fact it was already like right on top of it. And then that's how it collides. Wow. And this is all down to a software bug. So this was not a successful mission. Uh, the Mishap Investigation Board came to that conclusion. They, they did meet some objectives, but they were just the ones of getting to orbit and then like moving to the retirement orbit. Um, but in terms of the proximity operations with the satellite, that, you know, obviously did not go according to plan. But the Mobilecom satellite was still fine after that. Uh, they had to, you know, do some resets and then it just, you know, kept on doing what it did. So I don't know how fast the collision was, but it, it did send the Mobilecom spacecraft into a slightly higher orbit. So if it was meant to be in a sun-synchronous orbit and you put it into a higher orbit, it's obviously no longer sun-synchronous. So I don't know how usable that uh, that particular satellite was from that point forward. But, you know, they had already met all their mission objectives at that point. So that's this week in space by history. I hope that made sense. Yeah, so thanks. That, that was that was awesome. That's uh, not too often we get a uh, uh, this week in space flight history uh, collision that still has a happy ending, <laughs> at least for one of the uh, Clydes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. For that which is being collided into, uh, things went, you know, as well as can be expected. Yeah. True. Not not really a happy ending for the Dart team, but in any event, um, next week will be uh, Ben's. Um, uh, will be giving the uh, event, and so he's got a clue set up for us. And so uh, next week, which is the twentieth through the twenty sixth of April, uh, what is our clue on behalf of Ben? <laughs> yeah. So the clue for next week is in nineteen ninety seven, and now and the clue is reduce, reuse, recycle. So I don't know, don't know what that's about, as per usual. But yeah. <laughs> it's definitely a Ben clue. Yeah, but if you think you know, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. With that, let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. Uh, we got one launch definitely, or probably, and then possibly even two, but we also have two other events. So you're going to start us off with the first of those already in space spaceflight yeah. events. All right, we got quite a variety coming. So uh, on the 13th of April, um, OSIRIS-REx Osiris is going to complete the downlink of data from its recent flyby. Uh, if you had caught in the news, uh, it came within just a uh, couple miles of the um, uh, sampling site, Nightingale. And so uh, it's basically going to, you know, uh, is, is currently, you know, downloading the data from this this close flyby, which is its last one, um, you know, the closest it's been to the asteroid since it did its sampling event. And, um, you know, the purpose of this was to go and take pictures of uh, uh, the quote from NASA is, uh, quote, look at the mess it made. And so, mm, yeah, should be good. <laughs> and then after that, on the 14th, uh, possibly we might see a flight of ingenuity. So yeah, it had been delayed to no earlier than April 14th. So I guess, you know, that's when we can maybe expect to see it fly. But yeah, this um this delay was due to that watchdog timer issue that we were talking about earlier. So yeah, it was trying to transition from pre-flight to flight mode and then something went wrong. So maybe that will be fixed by the 14th um, and that will be very cool to see. Yeah, fingers crossed. And then next up on the 16th of April, we have a series of events all related to the uh, the crew of the Soyuz MS-17 uh, leaving. And so this is uh, Kate Rubens, uh, Sergei Rizhikov, and Sergei Kudsverchkov. Again, on uh, Friday, April 16th at 5.45 p.m. Eastern is when coverage will begin of the hatch 
closure, uh, with the closure itself scheduled at 6.10 p.m. Uh, then at 9.15 p.m., undocking coverage will begin with the undocking scheduled at 9.34 p.m. And then finally at 11.30 p.m., uh, the deorbit burn and landing coverage will begin with the deorbit burn scheduled at 12.01 a.m. Again, these are all Eastern times. And the landing scheduled at 12.56 a.m. Uh, on technically April 17th, really early in the morning. All right. Lastly, we have a possible New Shepard launch. So there's not much to go on here, but there are some flight restrictions in the vicinity of where it would be launching from. So that's kind of an indication that, hey, they might be doing a launch. So this would be in Van Horn, Texas. And um, the NOTAM restriction is uh, from the 14th of April to the 17th. Um, and that's uh, the 14th at 1200 UTC through the 17th at 2000. So I guess the earliest you might see it would be at 1200 UTC on the 14th, which, so if you're on the East Coast, um, that might begin, or you might see that launch starting as early as, um, as eight o'clock in the morning, or, you know, seven or five o'clock in the morning on the Pacific Coast. I guess just keep an eye out, but my guess is that it's not going to launch at 1200 UTC on the very first day. It'll be sometime after that. <laughs> I don't know why, but I just get that feeling like, you know, they're going to take their time and that's why they have this big window. Cause, um, if there's one thing that Blue Origin does is they take their time. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's no uh, no doubting that. Well, so those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And I guess with that, we can deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at orbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and links. And you can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check out our Twitter or Reddit for links. We are Orbital Podcast at both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so we will see you next time on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye, everybody.